All right, welcome everybody to the very first episode of the OT edition of the Resource Roadmap Show. This is something brand new we're doing at Therapy Insights, and I think we're all feeling excited about it, maybe a little bit nervous about it because it's something we've never done before, and um, I, there's not really a model for anyone else doing it, so it's kind of uncharted territory for us, so we're figuring it out as we go. Um, but this is a response to many years of feedback from members wanting a little bit more context and instruction on how to use our resources. So every month we're going to drop a new episode and talk about the new releases that we're, we've added to the library. And you can access this via YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts. And um, if you are subscribed to the Access Pass and you have the printables feature included, you'll have instant access to all of the resources that we're talking about today, as well as everything in our library. And if you're not subscribed, you can head over to therapyinsights.com and sign up today. Uh, we're also offering CEU credit, whether you watch this um, as a video or listen to it as a podcast. You just have to have the CEU feature included in your Access Pass membership, and then you can go on our website, go to CEUs, find this episode, so it'll be OT episode number one, and then you'll just answer a couple questions and get a certificate of completion for AOTA CEUs. Um, I am your host, but just for today, I'm just here to get the ball rolling, um, and then I'll pass it off to Carissa, who I'll introduce you to shortly. Um, but my name is Megan Berg. I'm the founder of Therapy Insights. I'm a speech pathologist located in Western Montana, and I spend most of my time running Therapy Insights, but I also do PRN um, at a hospital, and right now that's a couple days a week. So I'll introduce Carissa Simon, who's going to be your host going forward. And Carissa, I think your heart is in New Jersey. Is that right? You're going to be going back to New Jersey, but right now you're in New York and you're kind of in limbo in life. You're supporting your partner as he pursues a career in medicine. Um, and I know you've got two little kids and just tell us kind of what you specialize in with OT and um, all of that outside of your life of moving around and taking care of kids. So I've been an occupational therapist for 10 years now. Um, and I started in acute care and uh, specialized in neurology and kind of have remained specialized in neurology since. Um, after acute care, I got a chance to work at a rehab that we really focused on Parkinson's and I'm LSVT big certified and really have a great passion for treating that population, um, but really love all occupational therapy. And now I'm working PRN in um, a hospital up here and get to see kind of a wide range of everything, which has been really great. I learned a lot about burns because my hospital has a burn unit. So that's been really, really fun, but mostly specialized in neuro, but a little bit of everything. Awesome. Thank you. And then we also have Johnny Ryder with us and Johnny is based in Nevada. We, he just said that he changed out of a t-shirt which I'm very jealous of because it is five degrees here. Um, he's an American Sign Language interpreter. He recently completed the PhD, correct? Yeah, and, I graduated a couple years ago now. Awesome. And has five kids. We were just talking about AOTA. Somehow he's presenting four or five different papers or courses. So very busy guy. But tell us a little bit more about yourself, Johnny. Yeah, thank you, Megan. Um, been an occupational therapist for a little while, and I still practice, but I do teach full-time at Toro University, Nevada. Um, right now, I teach anatomy, neuroscience, and the mental health courses, but I've taught a lot of clinical courses, and I've worked from peds to adults. Currently, I work in an outpatient uh, neurological, um, basically, you know, clinic, but I see a lot of the complex rehab technology, and then I also work for community-based company where I see a lot of chronic conditions, mostly neuro and chronic pain, but I love all, all aspects of OT. Haven't really figured out what I want to do. Um, that's why I like OT. I, I just jump around every couple of years and um, enjoy being a part of Therapy Insights. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And we have Megan Wilkinson, who is your heart in Texas. Would you say that? 
Not so much for me. I'm very open to just wherever the journey takes me. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. your journey has taken you now to Ohio. You are also kind yes. of in limbo, supporting a spouse, pursuing a career in medicine, which yep. apparently like you have no control over your life when that happens. <laughs> you have to go. That's pretty and you've got a little And tell us more about yourself. Yeah. So, um, like you said, kind of similar path to Carissa just recently moved to Ohio, but, um, most of my work has been in neuro as well. And that's really where my heart is. Um, I have done most of my work in post-acute neuro. So very specialized working with, um, spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury in inpatient, outpatient respite, all different types of settings. Um, but again, I love all of OT, the flexibility, the creativity. Um, I have a really big heart for uh, community um, engagement and leisure and mental health, just kind of some of those areas that are really important, but we maybe don't always get to practice in some of those settings. So um, that's a big, big part of my passion with OT, but um, I've also worked in assisted living, um, inpatient, lots of different settings. Excellent. All right. So this is our OT team, fabulous people, fantastic clinicians. For those of you watching or listening, we welcome any questions that you have. If you have a question that's like, I'm working with a patient with XYZ, what resources from the library do you recommend? Or what clinical perspective do you have on this case? Um, those are questions that we would like to discuss on this show. And so you can reach out anytime at support at Therapy Insights with those questions. And because we're offering this for CEUs, we do want to verbalize our disclosures. So everybody here is being paid by Therapy Insights to present this show. And we are also talking about Therapy Insights products. Um, so with that, we're going to dive in. We have a great lineup of resources from emergency preparedness to utilizing the growth mindset to gate control theory for pain. And so what I'm going to do is share my screen. And so for those of you watching the video, you'll be able to see the resources as we're talking about them. If you're listening on the podcast, we'll do our best to describe the resource as needed. Um, but you can always uh, find the video on YouTube or find our resources online at therapyinsights.com. So, okay, the first resource, I need to share my screen though. Hang on. Okay. The first resource is called Find Motor Skills, and this is a push pin activity. So Megan, take it away and tell us about this resource. Yeah, so I love this material because it just has so much, um, so many different ways that you can use it. The kind of primary way to use it, of course, is using a, a push pin to really work on that um, tripod grasp and focusing those really targeted skills in order to hit those dots. Um, but we kind of created it so that there's some simplistic uh, shapes to follow um, up to moderate and then more complex. And there's all these different ways that you can um, use these with your clients. Uh, so the traditional way I'm going to kind of pull one up. I have a cork board. So I talk about on the, the worksheet or the activity that having something to protect the table, the surface you're under is probably ideal if you're using something sharp. So um, just a cork board and then I have a push pin and then you're just having them follow the dots and push it in all the way across. What's really nice about the moderate to more difficult ones is you can really add in, if you're looking on the, the screen on like the chameleon one, it has this cute little chameleon on a branch. And so you can add in some challenges for cognition and say, okay, first I want you to complete the leaves and then you need to do the branch and then the tail of the chameleon. So you're working on kind of attention, memory, sequencing, those types of things. You can add in different colors. Um, and then push pins, I think, can be maybe a little bit intimidating with some of our clientele that we might be using this with, um, just worrying about safety. So on uh, this handout, we also have some alternatives to that. You can use a highlighter to mark the, the dots, or you can use a pen to push through. Um, you can use a Q-tip with paint on it, something, you know, that's 
accessible to the patient, there's a lot of modifications that you can do to, to work on um, those fine motor skills. Um, it, it also goes into detail about ways that you can make it more challenging. So if you're on the simple shapes on the, the easier one, maybe you say, you know, do three dots on the star, then go to the triangle and do three dots and then go back. So they're having to kind of remember where they're at and find their location again. Um, or you can have them doing two different sheets. Um, you can incorporate exercise. There's so many different ways to use this, which is awesome. And then uh, on this material, we have some documentation tips as well, some goal writing examples, ways that you can really very easily set up this material, you know, grab it real quick and just kind of sit down with your, your client. So um, looking at, again, on the more complex ones, is the reason they missed it because of coordination, because of strength, or do they have visual perceptual issues? Is it an attention problem? What's going on there? So just kind of really thinking through what they're missing um, and why, and being able to kind of get more understanding of where your client's at with that. Um, and then again, with the goal writing, we have like a, a nice little example at the bottom. Um, specifically, you can use the dots, count them, and pretty quickly say, you know, they got 50% of the, of the dots. So it's a, a pretty easy task to be able to just grab from your desk and use with a lot of different types of clients. Yeah. And I love the documentation tips because like when it's five o'clock and you're writing your documentation, it's nice to have some words handy and just some guidance on like thinking through how you can document that effectively. So I think too, being able to, to, to read that first and go into the, the activity thinking about, I'm not just looking at fine motor. I might be noticing some of these other things. It's that weight off your shoulders a little bit. Yeah. Even as we were talking about it, I was thinking about how I could adapt it for people. Like, especially with a cork board, you could just put it up on the wall and really challenge someone's like balance and their like visual ability to see it. Like when it's um, on a wall. So there's so many different things you can do with this. There's such a great resource to have. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Thank you, Megan. And we'll move on to the second resource. This is called Emergency Preparedness with a Disability. And for those listening, it's a three-page resource and it talks about emergencies at home in the community and natural disasters. And I'll let Megan fill in more information. Yeah, so especially with my background primarily being in neuro, um, there, we had a lot of discussions about these life-changing conditions, you know, spinal cord injury, a really dense stroke, and you go home, and what does happen if there's an emergency? I mean, many uh, times in this situation, they have these ADA um, modifications made, but then there's only one way to enter or exit in a power wheelchair. What happens if that's blocked because of a fire or an earthquake or just being able to think through those things. Um, and I really, again, like the kind of versatility of this resource. It can be the first two pages really just kind of can get you thinking and um, starting out with making a plan. And you can use that as a handout for a caregiver or um, the client. And then kind of leave the third page out if you want, or you can have a more in-depth conversation and the third page really dives into some very specific questions about their condition. What would you do if you use a device that's powered by electricity and you've been out of power for days on end because of an emergency? So um, it starts out by kind of detailing uh, the different types of emergencies. So emergencies at home, uh, which might be a fire in the kitchen or a power outage, like I said, or um, emergencies in the community, which might be you get into a car accident and you have a very specifically modified car to drive your car because you have a spinal cord injury. Then what? Like who comes and picks you up? Where, you know, how do you move if you need a specific type of vehicle? And then natural disasters. And there's part of why we have this list is depending on where you live in the country, you know, moving from Texas to Ohio, the kinds of natural disasters that happen here are very different from um, in Texas. So um, really just thinking about that. And then uh, on the second page, it really kind of divides it into like 
having a backup plan. And what does that look like? I talk a lot in this, this piece about a go bag. So if there's an emergency, you just kind of have everything tucked in a specific place and you know, like you're going to have, um, the kind of basic essentials if you need to get out quickly, um, which is a, a really important thing to think about. And then specifically when we're looking at some of these clients who have had these uh, major life changes, um, they're using a lot of assistance, assistive devices in order to be independent and making sure they either have those with them in their go bag or if it's something that can't come with them, what are you going to do in the meantime? Um, and then dividing it into like a mobility related disability, if you're in a wheelchair, power chair, um, what do you kind of look for um, in emergency situations? And then also cognitive as well. So in the cognitive area, we talk a lot about like if you use an augmented device and that gets damaged or lost, and how are you going to communicate in an emergency situation? How are you going to tell somebody like, I you know, have this disability and these are my needs if you can't communicate. So just really thinking through all the different details there. Um, and I like this too, because it's really just an, a gateway for so many conversations that can continue on from this session. Um, and how do you, you set that up? There are resources like you can be in contact with in a lot of places, the, um, like electricity or the water, if you let them know that you have a disability, they actually will work in a lot of places to turn your power back on sooner, knowing that you have a disability and it would be harder for you to essentially live without that. So just really getting engaged in your community and using those resources. And I think um, what's really important to know as a clinician is that knowing your very local area and like what you have as access in those types of situations and who you can connect them with upon discharge related to those things. Awesome. I love the idea of having a resource like this, just because as, as um, occupational therapists, especially, I mean, in acute care or rehab, I feel like there's such um, focus on discharge planning and like getting them back in their house, but there's not really this focus on what you do in case of an emergency. Like, I don't remember ever like talking to my patients about what they do if the power goes out and they're in a power wheelchair. I think it's really important as therapists that we do talk about this and kind of bring light to this situation. I love that this makes it easy and gives clinicians a like step-by-step -step plan to follow to or to give the patient so that they can make the plan on their own. I've even found to add on what Megan said about, you know, utility companies, I live in a, a rural area where we don't have a lot of services. And we found that if you notify the fire department um, about someone that's living with a disability, we recently had three days without power and they were able to reach out to all the individuals who were on supplemental oxygen because they weren't able to use their oxygen concentrators. And I actually had a client that I worked with who we had gone through this process and, and use this handout and they were ready for that. The fire department knew that they were on oxygen and was able to reach out to them and actually show up at their house during that power outage to ensure that they got something that they needed to survive. So this is a great resource and a good topic that we're talking about. That's amazing. <laughs> I think too, there can be so much anxiety surrounding going home after this and knowing you know, all of these changes have happened. You don't, you want to help them feel confident in being able to handle any sort of situation that, that pops up. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, having that backup plan, knowing you have a long list of people to contact in these types of situations, the fire department, you know, Sue from down the street or whoever to be able to come in and, and help you add so much security for them. So very important. And Johnny, this ties into the article snapshot that you wrote. So yeah, we go. it's like we try to make sure that this content is all evidence-based here at Therapy Insights. <laughs> so, but we really do. A, a lot of the things we share are very creative from our clinical background, but we work hard as a, as a team to make sure that we're also providing evidence-based information. And so very briefly, we have a scoping review for those of you listening, and it's called Advancing Emergency Preparedness for People with Disabilities and chronic health conditions in the community. And so 
the the fun thing is that this is a topic that's being talked about more and more and the the big picture from this is that the research says we as community-based practitioners including all of us in this allied health professions but specifically occupational therapists we can do this but what you'll find interesting is that the research says we need more resources which is, is what we're providing today which is perfect but in the scoping review they actually found 24 publications looking at this emerging role. So there is literature out there to support our role in this. And the literature talks about the knowledge and skills and the attitudes that are necessary, which we possess as occupational therapists and kind of the training that's available and what we might need in the future. And so even if maybe your occupational therapy program didn't talk about this specifically, uh, we want to highlight that you have the skills that are, that are necessary to support your clients, to enable them to be prepared for emergencies. You just may need um, some, some resources and some time to, to work through this. Some of the key things that we wanted to share, uh, one was, hopefully everyone agrees with this, but people with disabilities and chronic health conditions have the right to be included and to be active participants in emergency preparedness. So those of you listening or watching that, that maybe you haven't addressed this, hopefully that now you're going to start to think about this and try to utilize this resource. And if at the very least, discuss this with them. Do they already have a plan in place? We know there, there needs to be more research to understand kind of how to optimize these interventions and utilize what we what we bring from each of our own professions. And this is actually a topic that's being talked about in, I've seen presentations at the AOTA annual conference, in our state conference, so this is getting more traction. We have a responsibility as occupational therapists to increase client self-sufficiency to prepare them to respond to these emergencies, okay? What this review also found is that we need to be focused more on the strengths that our clients already have. And they, they suggested that we need more tools to basically highlight those strengths and prepare them rather than just focusing on what they, they can't do, what can they do, what resources are in their community, what access do they have so that they can prepare for and respond to those. And we need to think about how do we make these resources accessible? for all individuals. And so when you, when you think about this, and, and Megan mentioned I'm a sign language interpreter, you've probably seen a lot that now when there is an emergency and an announcement from FEMA or the CDC, they're providing them in, in sign language as well. And if you take our resource from Therapy Insights and you also want to, to add to this and kind of have, have your own um, list, one of my favorites is ready.gov. And if you go there, they have resources to build on what we've provided and even talk about kind of low cost or no cost kits, give you more ideas once you've initiated that discussion with your client. But pretty much any government site, the CDC, FEMA, the US Department of Health and Human Services and Red Cross, they all have resources and links there. And some of those are the ones that I talk about where an individual who uses sign language can actually hop on and, and see in their own language what's happening um, around the country right then as far as natural disasters how they're supposed to, you know, where they're supposed to go for point of contacts, things like that. So this is a scoping review, meaning they didn't really appraise the, the level of evidence or anything. They just said, this is what we know. This is all the evidence. And big takeaway again is that we have the skills. We've learned them, even though we haven't really thought about that. And utilizing this resource, you can start to kind of put those skills to better use and hopefully start to talk to clients about how are they prepared and then enable them to be prepared and respond to um, various disasters or emergencies. Great. Thank you, Johnny. Okay, moving on to piece number three, um, written by Megan. This is called Vision Deficits in the Geriatric Population. Yeah, so I think I just have a passion for vision. Again, working in neuro, that's something I see a lot. It can just be so complicated. And I think that passion comes from, there's just kind of this immense feeling of loss that happens when vision all of a sudden goes away or you're missing something. And so it's a very emotional process, I think, for a lot of our clients. Um and so this one's specifically looking more at the geriatric population, which, as we know, the uh, that's more common for vision deficits to kind of just crop up due to aging. It's just a very common thing that happens as we get older. And so this details the four kind of most common um, deficit or uh, sorry, yeah, deficits that 
that come with the geriatric population, which is cataracts, glaucoma, age-related macular degeneration, and diabetic retinopathy. Um, the first page just kind of gives some details on what each uh, diagnosis is, what it might kind of look like, some of those differences, how we can treat it. Some of them are treatable, some of them not so much. Um, and then the rest of it is really looking at function. Again, like as OTs, that's our, that's our bread and butter. And looking at what is the functional impact? What are some areas that we might see them not being able to engage in anymore? And then lots of different sections on intervention. And so um, always, always, always starting with education. I just so much power in education and being able to educate families and clients. And, and what does that, it, what is this going to look like? Is this progressive? Are things going to get worse? Um, how do we treat this? Is it treatable? Do, you know, are we looking more at modifications? What, you know, how are we going to go about approaching this? And one of the resources that I found for um, helping support education is there is a application that you can download on your phone called the NEI VR application for the National Eye Institute. And they um, developed a very simple app that outlines these four diagnoses. And um, if you are listening right now, Megan is pulling them up on the screen or the app on the screen for us. So very simple um, graphics here kind of showing what it looks like. And you can open like, for example, Megan, if you want to click on cataracts, you can open up cataracts and then you can choose a um, real life scene. So let's say someone with cataracts in a grocery store. So then you can click on grocery store and it has a view of what normal vision looks like in a grocery store. And then you can slide the picture to see what someone with cataracts might be seeing on that same image in the grocery store. And so this is such a powerful tool for family education, I feel like, being or caregiver education, being able to really put into view, like, this is what your loved one is going through right now and what those changes really look like um, and why that might be challenging. And I think that's, again, maybe some of my passion of vision is it's so interesting because it's like, you can't see what they they see as a clinician. Like they're telling you, well, I see spots over here or it's blurry. And it's like, you have to just kind of formulate that in your brain a little bit and, and work with the knowledge that you have. Um, and so this is a really powerful tool to kind of give family and caregivers like this is this is what this looks like. And so then I think being able to picture that they can go, oh, like, okay. And they're able to maybe offer more empathetic support in those situations. Um, and so, and it's really simple to use, Megan, would you agree? I mean, it's just yes. really basic, very simple, um, but a really, really powerful tool. It's free, super easy. Um, love that. Just a, a great visual to kind of give a your loved one has glaucoma and this is what this looks like. Um, so, and they have little quizzes on there too that you can kind of take so you can learn about a couple of facts related to, to each diagnosis and then it'll just quiz you on some questions, just say like, are you paying attention kind of thing. So um, awesome resource. So there is a QR code in this resource that you can just scan it, pop it up on your phone, download it, which is awesome. And then, um, Diving into some other interventions, looking at medication and health management, um, and just giving lots of, I would say, like suggestions, ways to modify resources to use because there's there are so many more than what is even in this resource. But it's it's um, really looking at kind of the main areas that we might see deficits in vision. So if you imagine being able to manage your medications, but you can't read the pill bottle or um, some of that really valuable information. What are you going to do in order to manage that? The next section really looks at lighting and lighting is huge for all four of these conditions and how we can modify the environment um, in order to work on a task at a tabletop versus working um, or just, you know, watching TV or looking at your phone. Um, and then that kind of moves into the next section, which is reading, writing, and screens. And that's like, 
you think about that's that's a very prime primary way that we use our eyes. And so how do we we look at that? And again, the thing with a lot of these conditions is there the severity level too is understanding what severity level the the client is at and how do we modify some of those. Um and I love too like task simpl simplification. There's a couple pointers in there about that. That is just like one of the best ways to just take some of the stress off of our clients and being like, so for being able to buy pre-chopped vegetables or meats. So you're not worrying about chopping with a knife and like, whether you're going to hurt yourself and that just relieving some of that stress and pressure. It's so easy to just say, I'm just going to buy pre-chopped vegetables and I don't even have to worry about using, using the knife or modifying this, um, or, using uh one tip I really like is like we don't have to put toothpaste directly onto the toothbrush if we're trying to get this tiny little dot of the toothpaste onto the toothbrush like it is totally acceptable to squeeze a little bit of toothpaste right into the mouth and we can use our touch we can use other senses in order to make that that work and I just think that's one that people are like oh I never even thought <laughs> that that would be an option there so I've, I've used that one several times um using organization, again, offloading some of the stress, making sure like I can find the things that I use frequently easily. I'm not rummaging around through clutter where, you know, with these um, diagnoses, you might be looking at it and going, oh my gosh, that's so much. I can't even, like it stresses me out even just looking at it because I can't even process through all of these things. And it might be like, let's get down to just two spoons, cooking spoons that we use in the, in the kitchen instead of the whole drawer of cooking spoons that we use, right? So that we can kind of just ease some of that stress off of them. Um, and then lots of different environmental modifications. Increasing contrast is huge. Um, I'm a big coffee drinker. And uh, so the, the picture in this one is, is perfect for me. Being able to see that, that dark coffee in the white coffee mug, that's how my husband drinks his coffee, right? But I like mine with a little bit of cream. And so a white mug, the cream in there would not add contrast. And so we want to um, be thinking about just changing contrast and colors and so that it stands out to them. Um, and then adding color as well, if they use the microwave all the time, but they pretty much only use that one specific button for um, like popcorn or whatever some of those auto settings are, we can add um, brightly colored tape. There's kind of those bump the bump, uh, oh my gosh, with stickers that you can add onto it to add a little bit of extra texture to it. Um, Velcro, uh, there's just so many different options that we can kind of, again, take away the stress from our vision and add it to other senses. Because as we know, the brain will just reroute to those things. We will start to look for more input. Um, with the tact, like tactile or hearing or like with the toothpaste, like feeling it in your mouth instead of relying so heavily on our vision, practice makes perfect type of thing, rerouting those wires in the brain. So lots of really good tips in this one. Yeah, and Megan, am I remembering correctly that you, was it last month that you did a pretty comprehensive vision evaluation piece? So that would yeah, well. absolutely. I think that was one thing I have found in my practice is that kind of similar to what Johnny was talking about with emergency preparedness. I think some programs don't put a lot of emphasis on vision, but it's so huge, especially if you end up working in neuro or in the geriatric population, it's a big part of OT. And yet we don't necessarily have maybe the education or the resources on that. And so having something simplified to be able to kind of run through the different types of vision deficits that we might be seeing. And um, it also points you to, if these are the types of scores they're getting, then they need a referral to go see a, um, a physician and be assessed. And then that can help you move forward with intervention. And so having something all in one place to kind of just do some quick, quick assessments um, was something that I've felt has been needed um, in a lot of, of OT settings. Yeah. I, I was just gonna mention real quick, one reason why I like this is we can use this handout for us as clinicians as a, as a quick review or as talking points. We can share this with family members, with clients, but 
one thing that's great about our profession, whenever we walk into the home or we meet with a client and they're coming to us, especially when they have a vision deficit, and as Megan mentioned, not something that's always correctable and may, may actually get worse over time, this handout and this discussion brings hope because what we're really sharing with them is that, hey, we have all of these different tips and tricks, let's problem solve together and find a way that you can live well with this vision loss or this low vision. And that's ultimately what this handout supports. Absolutely. And this segues nicely into the next article snapshot. So I'll hand it oh. off to Johnny. Okay. And again, um, everything that Megan said is, is built upon in this um, systematic review that I'm going to share. It highlights the first thing Megan said was about education, how important that is, and the systematic review highlights that as well. But it's um, occupational therapy interventions to improve performance of daily activities at home for older adults with low vision, for those of you that want to look it up. Um, real quick, I want to mention it is from 2013. And being a researcher myself and, and professor, I'm obviously biased about some of this stuff, but it's hard for me when I hear people say, oh, that's old research, you know, we, we shouldn't listen to that. If research is done good, it doesn't matter when it was done, and we don't have a new systematic review, there's definitely been research since 2013 that we want to add to our understanding, but we the, the themes that come from this systematic review still hold today. And so I, I just want us to remember that, but still look at what else has been published. But this gives us the most information we could share um, as a team. It actually included 17 studies with very high levels of evidence. Okay, and, and first of all, as we, we know that age-related vision loss is a progressive condition and that there's a lot of older adults living with this um, impairment. There's even a specialty certification that our profession offers but it's, it's more than just going into their home or seeing them in the clinic and just offering them some devices. As Megan said, education is so important. And what they actually found here, um, jumping down to some other bullet points real quick, was that education should start with knowledge of the actual condition. And so we have an app, we have a handout that can help us with this, but we need to help them understand what does this mean for me? then we can provide them with information, education, training on various devices or compensatory strategies. It doesn't stop there though. The systematic review found that we need to train them in problem solving skills. So not just how do I use this for this one task, how do I use it for task X, Y, and Z? Um, and then they found that multiple sessions were needed. So we needed to teach them this, give them an opportunity to practice it in their own environment, and then see them again to return to that problem solving. Something interesting that came up was they found that a lot of these multi-component intervention programs, which were the best, uh, included some relaxation skills and kind of processing living with this low vision and relaxing a little bit because we know anxiety, distress, fear, some depression is commonly associated with this. Um, and then providing them with as many resources as we could in a way that was accessible, understandable, and usable to them. They found that there was multi-component interventions, single-component interventions, and multidisciplinary interventions. And of course, when we had multiple components, that was the best, but we needed to provide them um, in, in over time, not just all in one day, throw them all these resources. You can imagine how overwhelming that would be. And so it, it, this may seem a little weird, but if you give me a second to explain it, if you're working with low vision uh, patients a lot, such as you know Megan and Carissa and myself, and you're working in this neuro population, maybe you're working home health, skilled nursing, you're gonna see them. You can actually cite research in your documentation and you don't need to know the entire name of that study. You don't have to know everything, but I commonly cite key studies that support justification for working with these patients. And so one big finding that this um, systematic review came to the conclusion of was that we needed to have multiple sessions with someone with low vision. And so if we're justifying why we need a follow-up session, why we need multiple sessions, citing something like this, one shows that we know our evidence to the payer sources, to, the, to those reading it, but it also um, shows that we're evidence-based in our profession and as practitioners. But they need time to adopt these, they need time to incorporate the new knowledge, to try these different resources, these different low vision devices, and then problem solve what's going to work for them in their daily life. 
Johnny, that's such a great suggestion because as occupational therapists, I'm sure we've all faced um, the insurance kind of dictating how many sessions we get and mm -hmm. what a patient needs or doesn't need. And the idea of putting like a citation in our documentation is such a good idea because most of the people who are reviewing this and making these decisions don't have any real knowledge of what occupational therapists do or what the evidence says. So it makes it easy for them to see that what we are doing is appropriate. We, we don't have to know every study out there, but we tend to work in one area. And so knowing a few key studies is really nice to support what we're doing. Um, but I found that some of these specialized institutions, when I was working with um, uh, Cleveland Clinic, they have therapists cite actual research in there. And that's where I learned, learned about this and saw it as an example earlier in my career. And I've kind of adopted it and I think it's helped me. Um, but it's definitely made me more aware of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Yeah, for sure. And for anyone listening or watching, that's the um, the great thing about these article snapshots is there's kind of a summary of the research and then there's these clinical takeaways at the bottom of each one. So if you haven't checked those out, be sure to check a few out and read them um, and that'll help guide your documentation if you want to be citing research in what you're documenting. All right, let's move on to resource number four. This is called Growth Mindset. And for those of you listening, it's a one-page handout comparing fixed mindset to growth mindset and has a picture of like a mountain path. So like <laughs> climbing a mountain. <laughs> Tell us more about it, Megan. Yes, I loved the image that our designer came up with for this handout. I was like, this is so perfect. Um, so growth mindset, again, like I, I mentioned earlier in my introduction, mental health is something I'm really, really passionate about because we you cannot treat the whole person without considering mental health, no matter what setting you are in. If you are not considering mental health and the things that the client that you're treating and whatever they're going through, whether it's, it's ortho sniff, you know, wh whatever setting you're in, whoever you're, you're treating mental health is part of that. And I find that, um, well, one, I think we all can benefit from growth mindset, every single person on this planet clinicians too, you know, I mean, I think we've had a lot of challenges in the rehab world in general in the past couple of years. And some of those negative, um, internal that, that voice in your head that just kind of pokes it at you. And it's like, I just can't do this. This is way too hard. Some of those, those, uh, negative phrases that loop through our head, being able to kind of fight that with growth mindset is really valuable too. So as a clinician, this is be beneficial too. you know, hang it up in your, your, uh, rehab room where everyone documents. Right. Um, but for our clients, I think, this is a beneficial way to kind of approach those, those clients that are um, limiting themselves a little bit. They're, they're, these phrases are running through them. They're just like, I just can't, this is, this is too hard. I've, you know, again, in, in neuro, I've had a spinal cord injury. My whole life has been uprooted. I cannot do this. You know, I'm never going to be able to do do these things again. I'm never going to live a full life. I'm never going to be happy. Some of those phrases um, using this uh, skill, this being able to practice growth mindset can really help push them to that kind of next level. And just having those open conversations, too. I think that these are the ways that as clinicians, because we develop these really in-depth relationships with our, our patients, we can have some of these hard conversations about, um, you know, I, I know this is hard. I can, I can validate how challenging this is for you. Um, that, you know, this is a, you know, you're at the bottom of this mountain, you're looking at the picture, right? You're at the bottom of this mountain right now, and you're trying to get up to that flag and it's not a straight line up. And sometimes in reality, you're probably going to go back down a couple of times, but being able to have some of those real conversations about like, how do we face this challenge together and being able to practice um, some of those, those uh, growth mindset terms. So this is kind of, if you look at the bullets next to each other, so the first bullet, I can't do this is a fixed mindset. That's very concrete. You don't um, you, you see that 
you cannot change what your situation is. And that's the end. That's what someone who has a fixed mindset has. It's like, this is my situation, the end. I can't do anything about it. And someone who has a growth mindset is like, this failure is an opportunity for me to be better. This is a way that I learn, which again, we're, that's something we're doing in therapy all the time. The first time you present them with a task, they probably get 20% accuracy or whatever it is. And then you can bring that back to them a few weeks later. And it's like, look, you got 50% accuracy, right? Failing is how we learn and being able to kind of readjust some of those. Um, so just kind of having to being able to model this. So if Megan, I might role play with you for a second. Um, if you are a client that I have been working with for a while and, you know, we're really working on that sit to stand and, um, you just, every time we get up to, to stand you, I can't, I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm going to fall. Um, you know, I'm too weak. Those types of, of phrases. That's what I've been hearing over and over again then I might actually have you repeat these things back to me. So Megan, can you read the first line under fixed mindset for me? I can't do this. So how does that make you feel when you say that? I feel pretty limited. Like I'm in a small box. Like that's, that's it. There's nothing here to work on. Okay. Now I want you to read the first line under growth mindset. I'm still learning. I will keep trying. And how does that one make you feel? It makes me feel like it's okay to make mistakes and that you're not here to judge me or like I'm not wasting your time um, by making those mistakes and that it is a learning process. Yeah. So let's do another one. So what's the second line under fixed mindset? It's too hard. And how do you feel after that? Um, I think I feel like I want someone to acknowledge that it's really hard and, but it also feels like hopeless. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's fair and having those feelings are totally valid, but let's try the, the second bullet point under growth mindset. This is going to take time and effort. And how do you feel about that when you say that? I feel like it takes the pressure off of like, it doesn't have to be fixed today. Um, and that everybody's acknowledging that we're in it for the long haul. Absolutely. And our whole team feels that way when we're, we're doing therapy with you, we understand that it takes time and effort and we understand that it's a process. We also understand that it's challenging and that it's hard, but if, what if instead this time, when we work on our sit to stands, you use one of the the phrases like I accept this challenge or um, I haven't figured it out yet after we we try to do the sit to stand and see how we feel then. I can try it. <laughs> All right. I love it. So being able to you could have this at the mat with you in the gym, you're kind of have it at the side if you really need to be able to give them motivation or if you need to first have that really that like kind of sit down heart to heart talk with them about what this means. Um, I think having those phrases is a really good way to be able to practice this again as a clinician. It makes it easy. It's right there in front of you. And two, as a handout, this can be something that, you know, they keep with them. They keep it in their room or if it's a facility that they have a binder or a way that they keep their stuff together, they keep it with them. And the more that we're repeating those positive feedback loops those positive self-talk, the more we believe it to be true. And so being able to practice that in those moments, you know, again, if there's a specific thing, sit to stands are really challenging or um, being able to use the, uh, the reacher to put on your clothes or whatever it is, something that's really, really challenging, having that right there with, with them and being like, let's try this. Like, let's say these words and see how we feel about it then. Um, I think is great. I also love this for a group therapy activity. Um, if you're able to kind of get everyone together, there's some, there's power in the group mentality and everyone's going around and repeating these positive phrases and bringing each other up. And then also having that active discussion. Um, you know, if there's 
multiple people in the group who are struggling with that fixed mindset, being able to one kind of get that sympathy, like when Megan was role-playing saying like, I feel like I want someone to acknowledge that it's hard being able to connect with other people on how challenging it is, but then also working towards trying to use this growth mindset together as a group. I think there's a lot of utility in this very simple one page handout. Absolutely. It's interesting because when you think about growth mindset, probably everyone listening has heard that come up in, in, in the media recently, but when they were studying how do we help people build growth mindset, they took a little bit from the you know therapy world's playbook and they explained students the idea of neuroplasticity, which I, I bet every occupational therapist that's worked with someone with a stroke or a brain injury has kind of explained to them in lay terms what neuroplasticity is. And then they found that these students understanding that the brain was malleable and could change and could grow new connections and things like that, they developed a better growth mindset and worked harder in school. And so building off of what Megan just said, we're probably already talking a little bit about that idea of recovery and what's possible in neuroplasticity. And so we can kind of use that as a segue into growth mindset, but they, they build off of each other, they support each other, and we might get some better outcomes when we actually talk about this term and use this in conjunction when we kind of share a little spiel about neuroplasticity. What a great tool for clinicians to have. I mean, we've all had those patients where you just can't get them to engage, like you can't get them to buy in. And this is, a, it explains it in a way that I think a lot of clinicians can use successfully to try to get their clients to buy in. Yeah. And at the bottom, there's, there's a list that um, talks about different ways that you can foster a growth mindset. One of the ones that I find the most powerful is to replace the word failure with learning. Every time you're like, well, <laughs> I didn't do that well, or I failed at that or whatever. If you're just like, that was a way for me to learn. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you change that, then that's your whole perspective on the way you approach things is huge. And so there's several little bullet points down there too, that can kind of help you work towards not just the phrases, but different ways, different mentalities to work towards using growth mindset. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we'll move on to our final piece, which is called gate control theory of pain in practice. So this one is more meant as a handout for our, our clients, or maybe a, a caregiver, a, a family member who is very involved and wants to kind of understand some of these processes. So it's very kind of a simplified version. It's a one page handout. Um, and just talking about what the gate control theory of pain is, um, again, in a simplified version. So talking about the gate that either blocks those pain signals or allows them through to the brain. Um, and essentially it gives some good examples that every person has has had so like when you get a bug bite how you might rub the bug bite to try to make the the itch go away and how that works and so it's kind of the same um process with gate control theory of pain so again a way that a client would very easily be able to relate to that i think everyone has had a bug bite before um and it talks about briefly about how some studies have recently found that the mechanisms that were initially proposed aren't entirely accurate, but that the therapies that have been developed um, based on the gate control theory of pain are um, effective. And so um, that's linked to the bottom with our little resource there. And um, then the main way that we implement this in therapy is using modalities. So again, I think helping to understand for the client, why is my therapist starting my session using a TENS unit or using moist heat at the beginning of a, a session? Um, just kind of having an explanation for, oh, like this is because I'm really limited by my pain and I feel better when I start my therapy session with heat or with um, the TENS unit. And some other um, modalities listed on there are massage and the use of analgesic creams. So those are kind of the, the main ones that, that function under that gate control theory of pain, you know, starting the session with those modalities and then jumping into strengthening or stretching or working on mobility. 
Um, so very simple handout, just going back to what we've said a few times in this, this talk is education is key. I, I find that my clients always do better if they understand why I am doing what I'm doing and having an, expl an explanation and uh, a nice little handout that they can keep refer back to um, is a great tool to have. Excellent. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And we're going to wrap up with our case study. So like I said, every month we'll have a new case study and this is a chance for us to talk about resources in the library um, that already exist and also talk about different opinions and perspectives about clinical approaches. So this month we're talking about Mrs. Tanner, who is an 81-year-old right-handed woman with osteoarthritis in her hands, knees, and hips. She was recently widowed and moved into an assisted living facility. Her family has noticed some changes in her cognition, which promoted the move to assisted living. Prior to moving to an ALF, uh, Mrs. Tanner enjoyed playing bridge, knitting, and creating scrapbooks in her free time. Since moving, she has demonstrated limited engagement in community activities and is exhibiting signs of depression. And so what we'll do what we'll is do. we'll go through the three resources that everybody's picked out. And then after that, we'll chime in with any thoughts about addressing this case. Um, so Carissa, you selected a resource called Origami for Fine Motor and Cognition. You want to just tell us about this resource and why you selected it? So I picked this because she had leisure tasks that were kind of similar to this, um, the scrapbooking that she liked playing bridge, things that involved her hands. Um, and uh, so I thought that origami would be meaningful to her. It would be something that would engage her and keep her interest and she would want to do. Um, and then also because the family had noticed some changes in her cognition, we felt this would be a good way to assess what kind of issues that she's really having, whether it's attention or sequencing, if she's able to follow directions, maybe it's more visual and it's not really cognition and the family was just attributing it to that. So I thought this was a really great activity. You could just pull out and engage her and hopefully this would be meaningful to her and give her like an activity that she could maybe do in her free time in her room. Great. And Megan, you selected um, the yarn wheel activity. Tell us about this. Yeah, so I had kind of a similar thought pattern to Carissa. So she really enjoyed knitting. And so this is using yarn and you're kind of getting some of that tactile input similarly um, with knitting, but again, has cognitive aspects, has fine motor aspects um, of using that. And then also I kind of, I have used this tool in group therapy and I was thinking that it might be because it would be meaningful to her, being able to maybe do it in a group um, with other clients might kind of increase some of that social engagement and reduce some of the, the depression. Great. And Johnny, you selected the resource called uh, Workbook Impact of Mental Health on Daily Routines. Why did you pick this one? Yeah, for, for our listeners, this is kind of, it's got a lot of questions that kind of the therapist can use to dive a little bit deeper into health conditions the client may have, how mood affects them, you know, how often they feel lonely, what their expectations are of themselves, what activities they enjoy, if anything, part of their routine feels like a burden. And on the back, it's even got kind of an, an opportunity for them to rank those needs and their wants and kind of identify their support network, talk about things like technology for communication, um, getting outside more, all those things that we know are important for mental health. And so I wanted to kind of go a little different direction and think about how I could, as an OT, use this resource to really kind of prompt some discussion on, you know, that onset of depression that they're feeling, um, prioritize some of the client's wants, needs in this new environment with changes to their daily routines. And then with the client's permission, I think that um, we could share this with maybe the staff at the uh, assisted living facility, those that would be helping or assisting, or maybe with the family and brainstorm problem solve ideas to address that depression, to improve well-being. Because in my experience, and I think this has been mentioned more than once tonight, these things aren't always discussed openly. Um, we may mention that we do this, or it's kind of a quick conversation, but I think getting a little bit deeper into what's important to this individual 
um, finding ways to bring meaning into their, their new routine. And there's just power in writing these things down, having this conversation, maybe even consider posting this on the wall in their room so people coming in know what do they want, what do they need, who is in their social network when they are having a tough day, who can we reach out to to um, provide that support that they need, and maybe even help carry over some of the goals that um, occupational therapy has or other disciplines related to their mental health and their daily routines. Great, thank you. And any thoughts about this case study as far as how you would approach it from a clinical perspective, whether that's talking with the patient or the family or any thoughts you have? I think Johnny's point uh, would be a great place to, to start, right? I mean, it's again, like where we have kind of had this conversation lead in multiple times, like you, their mental health is incredibly impactful. And yes, we can get them doing their maybe some more leisure activities, working on some of those fine motor and cognitive skills, but um, being able to, to kind of get them engaged and having that positive uh, social interaction, um, I, th I think is, is huge. Um, so to me, starting there would be probably my prime, my primary focus would be how, how do I get basically like get them lifted? Like, how do I get them more engaged? How do I, um, support this person? Because again, if we are working with someone who's got pretty significant depression, um, how engaged are they going to be in working towards some of the pain they're having with their osteoarthritis? Are they going to want to be doing exercises and, and some of those types of things if they're depressed. And so, um, I, I think that's an excellent point that you made, Johnny. Yeah, I agree. And that, um, that handout even has like, I feel like you could pull your goals from their answers, Absolutely. That handout, which is so awesome. And I mean, just knowing this population, a lot of times moving to assisted living, is like very difficult for people and they kind of just see it as the end. So giving them, really trying to help her create her new routine, like find new roles, find new meaning in life, because you do really lose a lot of those when you move to assisted living. You, I, I know a lot of my clients have said they just feel like purposeless, like nobody needs them anymore. If anything, they're just a burden. So trying to help her find roles that will engage her and give her some meaning back in her life to give her that purpose and motivation to then address the medical issues that are going on. I think we have to always remember, and this is not unique to this case study, but maybe it's very real here that we're not going to be working with Ms. Tanner forever. And so the big picture here is how do we ensure this transition, um, which Carissa has talked about, and the mental health, which we've talked about, is, is going to continue um, to be positive after we are maybe removed from this situation. So once discharged from these services, and I think that's a, a huge role of us as occupational therapists is to involve that facility, involve family, build those connections, and we can facilitate some of that so that hopefully as we see that progression and things are going great in our sessions, when we're ready to discharge them, we don't wonder, is this going to continue? Do we have, you know, we talked about an emergency plan for emergency preparedness, but do we have a plan in place for them when they do have a setback? And does that plan involve the facility? Does it involve their support system? Well, if we have that handout completed, that's that's great because it's all there and everybody's aware of how to help Miss Tanner in the way that Miss Tanner wants to be helped. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, engaging the the team at the assisted living is huge too. A lot of those um uh, facilities can have uh, rotating group activities, right? It's like social activities. And so using some of this information um, of what her leisure um, activities are, maybe being able to bring her into one, getting her engaged in that. And then you're thinking, 
oh, she's now showing up on her own, or, you know, she's made a friend, someone that she's connecting with. And then that helps support what Johnny was saying is like, well, they've discharged. And now I know they're attending that class every Tuesday, Thursday, they're getting social support, they're getting that engagement in some of their leisure activities, which includes fine motor skills, which includes cognition, some of those things that we're, we're, we can feel comfortable when discharge approaches. It's interesting. There's been a lot of conversation lately about this whole idea of getting minutes with patients, which has improved significantly with PDPM, although in PGPM, there's more, there's other issues now, but now that we don't have that pressure within skilled nursing facilities to get the minutes, but we still have that pressure in inpatient rehab facilities um, and some other settings, but all of that to say that I think more and more we need to advocate for therapists to be more consultants, like interdisciplinary consultants. Like it's not just about the minutes that we spend with the person. Like we could go in and work with Ms. Tanner and like provide a lot of activities. And so every therapy session with her, she's engaged. But then if we're not consulting outside of that, um, there is no carryover, which is what you guys are all talking about. And so it's just something I've been thinking a lot about lately is like somehow we've we've been cornered into like it's the amount of time we spend with people. And I think it's not only that, it's how we um, engage with interdisciplinary colleagues and make sure that like what Johnny's saying, even when we're not there, um, she's still able to engage in life and meaningful activities. And a lot of that is just education, providing education to the social worker, the activities director, like in an assisted living, the nurse, like what the role of OT is, what our value is. And sometimes if it's a, if it's a new facility to like, you're a new therapist to that facility, it just takes a while to develop those relationships. And then once you have it, they buy into what you're doing, but it does take a lot of education and talking yeah. to the different stakeholders. Yeah, I, I've worked at a couple of different assisted livings and skilled nursing facilities, and the difference in having a team that is engaged, they're monitoring, they're paying attention to those types of things versus a team that maybe is like, why is this OT coming to talk to me about this for the third time? And it's like, well, because you're, you're not implementing what I told you to do. Um, but the the value in that there is in those facilities where that carrier over wasn't there, where we're not thinking about long-term, we're not looking at what's happening after discharge. Those are the ones that come back on caseload in a month because they're not participating in things that support their mental health, that support their cognitive health, their physical health. They're not um, being supported. They're staying in their room or wh whatever it is. And then all that progress they made in therapy declines. And so that's Megan, what you were talking about. It's not about the minutes. It's about long-term care. It's about the person, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's growth of the person and the individual. And when it's just spent on minutes, then that's when you end up with repeat, uh, admissions. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to move us forward and wrap things up because I know we're running over a little bit. Um, but at the end of each episode, we're going to just briefly mention resources that have been created by other um, interdisciplinary teams at Therapy Insights. So just so everybody knows, the physical therapy team just released a resource called Scar Massage as a Home Program. And then they also wrote a resource called What is Frontotemporal Dementia? So those are now available in the library. And the speech pathology team wrote a resource you all might be interested in called space retrieval. And it's just how to use the space retrieval technique to address memory impairments. Oh, and then they also uh, recently came out with a storage area deductive reasoning puzzle. And we had a great conversation on the speech therapy podcast, um, just all about making sure that we're not just pulling out a worksheet when we have 30 seconds to prepare for a client, but this is something that we specifically choose because they are working on very specific work-related skills that we can't recreate in a clinical setting. Um, so yeah, you can check all of those out. Thank you guys for joining us for this first episode. Um, like I said, you can get instant access to all of these resources and hundreds more at therapyinsights.com. 
all of the links are available in the show notes, whether that's on YouTube or in the podcast show notes. If you have a question for us at any time, you can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. If you're an Access Pass member, be sure to vote on what we create next, and we'll have a new episode dropping on April 1st. So we will see you then. Thanks, everybody.